0: So I've had to move to sit on the floor because you can hear the rain hitting my window at my desk. And do you know what? I really need to move to turn my email noises off as well because that's the most annoying... Should we see where it's from? Let's have a look. It's Twitter. It's bloody Twitter and wit, but I'm not going to buy any more things because I have no money. Right, so I also realised I have no intro. Um, can't afford that yet, so keep listening, guys, and you may help me get an intro that I can eventually pay someone to do, but for now, it's all good, we'll just start with, we'll just, we'll just get into it, you know, um, so first of all, this podcast is going to be about, um, I sounded like your year one teacher when you're like, come on then class, today's lesson, um, (laughs) but this podcast is going to be about mental illness in sport, um, and why we've got to this situation where being an athlete isn't, synonymous or not so much synonymous but isn't at least associated with mental illness um because to me i mean fair enough i study it but to me and my experiences and my friends experiences it, it's just completely backwards as to why it wouldn't even be associated with um athletes um but yeah so i've done a little bit of research as well because you know Should probably be doing that as it is, but (laughs) it's helpful to be grounded in knowledge or at least backed by um, academics. Jump on really quickly as well and say that my heart goes out to the family and friends of Finn Kitson, who was another student found dead in their accommodation as a result of suicide and to any families and people that have lost friends as a result of suicide at university or the coronavirus pandemic in general, um, please keep checking up on your friends If they seem off, you know, you can, you can send them a message, you can call them, you can send them a card, you can still do silly things even if they are isolating. Um, and if you are feeling incredibly lonesome, please know you are not alone. This situation, it may not feel like it, is temporary and it is terrifying. I'm not going to sit here and act like it doesn't bother me because it bloody well does. Um, But please, please, you're worth so much more. Please keep speaking up. And this will all be over soon. We all hope. Um, But we're all... So with athletes in... Athletes in sport, where else would they be? But there you go. (laughs) But with elite athletes, it's probably best to start off with what we define as an elite athlete. So obviously you've got athletes and it seems thankfully, now every day, considers themselves an athlete of some sort, whether that is bodybuilding or CrossFit or weightlifting or powerlifting or, you know, just running kind of every now and then. Um, thankfully, the general population does seem to like to get up and move and that's great, okay? So, we'll define an athlete as anybody that focuses on having a regimented schedule around improving themselves physically or you know, exerting themselves physically that would lead to an improvement um over time. However, I am talking about elite athletes and athletes that compete nationally and internationally, and gold medal winners in particular, and I'll tell you why. Gold medal winners and the very best of the best: Simone Biles, Serena Williams, um, Michael Phelps, um Michael Jordan these kind of very standout figures where it's just kind of incomprehensible how good they actually are. These individuals actually, from studies, have shown that they have faced some sort of adversity early in life. And now it's shown with about, now don't quote me on this, but it's about 80% of the very, very, very top athletes have faced some sort of adversity in life that sport has then been connected with and has provided them with, I wouldn't say a way out, but a way of overcoming, a way of dealing with that adversity initially in life. Um, And now in psychology, they look at this from many different approaches. It could be from a psychodynamic approach, you know, where we talk or we at least relate back to Freud and we say things, things happen very at a subconscious level. And this finding of sport kind of unearthed this potential because of this adversity and help them to cope with and overcome that initial trauma in their life and then when you look at it that way you kind of think yeah well it's not so hard to see as to why people have become so good at what they do um you know when it feels like it's the only thing you've got and the only thing that you have purpose for on this earth is to do that sure there will be some people that get to the top and and that does make sense but when we talk about trauma a lot of the time, I mean, for example, I, in development, in my developmental modules that I do at university, we look at actually trauma has quite a negative impact um, or candor is at least correlated with negative mental health disorders further down the line. Um, things like depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD. um, And, you know, when athletes kind of step out of this, kind of almost godly veil of what an athlete is and kind of says you know what actually I really suffer with mental health illness and it's not glamorous and we kind of unromanticize this idea of being an athlete and having it all you know you've got the money you've got the sponsorships you've got this kind of fulfillment you're motivated you look great you know like everyone seems to like you when when we step out of that and we actually realize that athletes are just human beings with granted very amazing talents people don't like it (laughs) and to me it baffles me as to why because when we look at some of the characteristics of elite athletes we look at them being perfectionists we look at them being very obsessive and at times to get to where you need to be at that sort of level in sport you do have to be selfish But often these characteristics are also associated with some pretty negative psychological traits. Um, Those traits being, you know, things like, well, selfishness and perfectionism would be down the line associated with narcissism. Again, I'm not calling athletes narcissists, but there is this very, very fine line between obsession and... Determination and being driven and very much motivated, and these slightly more unhealthy cycles you can get into as an athlete. So, from a paper that I was reading, um, it's Tatanen et al. In actually 2020, put in a paper that individual differences and vul- vulnerability to depression are still underexplored in athletes. So, what they're basically trying to say is that the general literature within the sport and exercise psychology domain is very much still underexplored. So we kind of, it's not unambitious to say that this is a con, the consequences of this are that the general population do not understand why athletes suffer with mental illness, if some of the people in the, at the very top of our, of the psychology level, have never really explored it. So, when we look at some of the studies there, we obviously know that elite athletes are very much, they ob- obsessive. We'll go with obsessive and obsessive in a mental sense. They rehearse mentally and consistently their motor movements, or I guess when you've kind of done that, you don't really need to, but they rehearse scenarios and situations where they will place themselves in these high pressure situations, at least in their psyche. And... They will sort of recreate this kind of atmosphere where they need to be and they need to have their experience even if physically, or at least in the physical world, they cannot gain it. Um, And again, fine line, consistently rehearsing and rumination (laughs) are two different, two very closely linked psychological tendencies. So rumination is this idea of disaster thinking you constantly reevaluate all the time. And what else is that synonymous with? Other mental illness? Anxiety. Anxiety is this constant worrying all the time, asking yourself again and again and again and again, you know, did I do that right? Did I do this wrong? I bet they don't like me. All of a sudden, it just takes that one little kind of tick, so to speak, and you're down this path of negative thinking. It's also synonymous with OCD. Um, you know, all these mental disorders that have received a diagnosis and are recognized in the British Psychological Association's kind of diagnosis list. Um, Yet when we think of athletes, we put it in this positive light and it's seen as something that would not or would never happen to them. Which is why I also don't like to use the word or the phrase mental toughness. Mental toughness is very much related to athletes and that, you know, a mentally tough athlete will be able to cope with so much adversity. But as I said earlier, most of the top level athletes or at least success that they've had could inadvertently or, or completely directly <laughs> be linked to the fact that they've had this adversity early in life. So it kind of begs this question again, like, how did we get to this point if some of these constructs are so closely linked that we, yet we don't associate athletes with having mental illness? Now, what we're actually doing is we're kind of tapping into this age or question in, in psychology, which is this sense of creativity and sort of intelligence, so to speak. And it, personality and individual differences, like I said earlier, is very underexplored in sport. Um, In part, it may be due to the fact that we just kind of categorize people as, you know, you're an athlete, so therefore you would not suffer from this, which again, is a very dangerous, very toxic thing to do. But when we study personality and individual differences as a completely separate module, without the influence of sport, we actually learn that there have been an annoying <laughs> amount, for to study at least, an annoying amount of in- intelligences identified. Can we then associate a certain type of intelligence with an athlete because they may be highly intelligent in the domain that it is necessary for them to be an elite athlete? So one of the other forms of intelligence is creativity. And again, it's this kind of argument that does creativity or a high level of creativity, therefore a high level of creative intelligence, exacerbate psychopathology or mental health disorders? Or do mental health disorders exacerbate the level of creativeness that a person thinks? And often, again, we seclude creativeness and what the ideas and the things we've been taught about creativeness to a single... um, what's the word I'm looking at? Definition here, that's what I'm looking for, definition. Um, And we often think of things like painting, or writing, or dancing, or singing, things that are very physically observable in the world. We think less about things that aren't so observable. The cognitive processes, uh, in my personal opinion, I believe you can have creative cognitive processes. Look at Einstein, for example. Obviously, his brain (laughs) did not work the same as everybody else's. In fact, in a 1985 study, there was actually found that Einstein's brain had an unusual amount of glia cells and actually lacked a furrow in the parietal lobe, which scientists since have suggested that this was a major cause for his ability to think abstractly and relates to the fact that this kind of fluid intelligence that some people don't have, or at least lack an ability like he did, to come up with some of the equations that he did and contributions he made to physics. The same with um, Stephen Fry, for example. He actually refuses to take, or doesn't like to take, his medication for his bipolar disorder because he appreciates that the, the high side of it in bipolar, or the mania, so to speak, actually helps his creativeness in his writing or whatever his do- or whatever he uh, decides to do it is actually an aid to him um which to the everyday person kind of seems a bit outrageous um and it's very much like well if you've been diagnosed with something then why wouldn't you take medication for it but i believe these individuals have a very different view of what mental illness is, and therefore believe themselves to be not so much part of the general population. Um, And this is because, a lot of the time, people believe mental illness is an issue, and we must fix it. You are above the norm, you are outside of the bell curve, and we must get you back to your place on the graph, and within the, kind of, like, perimeters of the society. But I believe these individuals think about themselves as this isn't actually a disorder. It's not something I live with. It's not something I deal with. It's not something that must be contained. It is me. And not it is me in that they're having this kind of like crisis and they're accepting it and they've accepted defeat. It actually aids them in what they need to do. Stephen Fry, for example, obviously does not take his medication because he believes that in order to be as best as he possibly can be, he's been given this gift, so to speak, that enables him to do the things that he needs to do in a way that nobody else ever could. Now, I appreciate, yes, medication is there from from a clinical point of view to protect that individual and those around that individual, but it's interesting to see that people suffering with these disorders themselves may actually believe it's not a disorder at all, and that it could potentially, in some cases, be a key to help people and to look at life in a different way. Does this creativeness exacerbate psychopathology, or does psychopathology create uh, exacerbate creativeness? And... Is it actually, again, like I said, sort of a key that they hold to seeing life in a different way, which ultimately, as we know in cognitive psychology, reframes a problem and allows you to look at it and perhaps solve a problem because nobody else can see it in that way. It's a very interesting tool perspective um, in terms of dealing with mental illness or in terms of dealing with problems, which obviously we can relate to mental illness, Um but if we talk about athletes and mental illness, are we potentially sacrificing health for performance and should we actually aspire to be at such a level that demands so much of us and could potentially take a lot from us as well? Personally, I think so, yes. Um, <laughs> I think, obviously, I have been brought up in sports since I was about five years old Um My parents were both involved in sport. We're all quite sporty children. Um, And it has absolutely made me. So I could not imagine my life without sport. But I also do appreciate that whilst these psychological tendencies are very much fine lines, we are autonomous individuals. Uh, We are competent individuals and we communicate to each other. And these three things are often things that are needed, it's the cognitive theory, basically, behind our basic needs. And within that is three main aspects, competence, relatedness, um, and autonomy. And, you know, we must feel like we can do things which is related to self-efficacy, we must have this belief that we can do something at, at a certain point in time and or at an event which is obviously competence, and um, then we have autonomy, that we must believe that we are in control of the things we do, um, and therefore, or at least are partially responsible for the things we can do, and relatedness, we must feel like we can talk to one another. Now, I, I appreciate with this idea of elite athletes, it, from to an outsider, it can look very much like a secluded, kind of almost, almost quite lonesome um, view or life to live, but when you create elite athletes, only other elite athletes will be able to relate to one another. So you actually do create this sort of community in which people can talk to one another, especially if we're talking about team sports, for example, that's a great example. And also illustrates why it's so important to have good team cohesion. Because if you don't, you know, it can lead to these sort of negative mindsets and negative tendencies. Um, But there are ways about kind of causing or creating interventions for athletes that we may perceive to be taking the more dark side of what is naturally given to them or what they have kind of like naturally come to be and within these interventions it's really important that we learn to expand what an athlete or an elite athlete would think of themselves it's important that that self-construct is pretty big and we don't just kind of relate to kind of like external um, definitions of what we believe we are, like, oh, I like cars, or I have, you know, which would insinuate you have to buy a car, and you have to work on it, or whatever, or I like clothes, and I have to buy a load of clothes, and I like this, it's important, whilst I'm not kind of demonizing these things, you can absolutely be invested in these things, it's important that we remember the internal aspects of us, like, perhaps we are really kind, or perhaps we're really good at doing something that isn't that sport. Perhaps we could be really good at cooking. We could be really good at communicating with others. We could be really good at checking in on other people. Um and again it's really important to not make these things as niche as possible, which I know I appreciate that again, social media is a massive influencer on these things. It's cool to be a bit weird and a bit quirky. Um and kind of catch an audience, so to speak, that other people wouldn't have thought of before. Um but the more we do not relate our worth to how many likes we get on social media the better in every aspect um but like i say the the bigger the self-construct within the athlete the more it correlates positively with other things sort of happiness and longevity and um longevity in terms of well-being as well um there's this idea that people who take care of their well-being or who take care of uh, their mental health by meditating for example or taking time out taking time off social media um kind of always it's it's like a level playing field it's always on the rise or it's always at level at least when actually actually doesn't look like that um it looks very much like that weird eyebrow trend on Instagram um, <laughs> to kind of keep it the ideal level that we want just like we like the word optimum. In psychology so we want an optimum level of uh, mental health and well-being and um, so it is really important to keep checking in on these athletes and again this is where this kind of need for uh, sports psychology has come in because we utilize every single aspect of psychology we utilize cognitive developmental social neuroscience um, statistical research and qualitative research Um, In order to kind of create a bit of a story and a background for this athlete in which we may possibly be able to relate in some medium or another, it may not necessarily be, I have lived the exact same life as you, because to be honest, statistically speaking, that's never going to happen, even if you're an identical twin. Um, Social environments are always massive influences on the way our brain develops. So that's just not going to happen. But we can, as human beings, use empathy. And although that sounded like a Miss American pageant, you know, like, oh, everyone's got empathy. (laughs) But it's true, empathy is a great tool to be able to relate to one another um, and to be able to really communicate properly and understand where people are coming from. And from that, you know, we can potentially draw on these sorts of um, tendencies that perhaps... A computer might not, taking a test or doing a questionnaire might not pick up on it. Um, And that's a really important part of it as well. So what we want to do is we want to raise awareness about athletes suffering with mental health. Uh, Freddie Flintoff's documentary is an outstanding example of this. I have never cried so much. Oh God, it's just that poor man, what he must have gone through. And the fact that he did it all and is still one of the best cricketers that we have ever produced, I say we, like, collectively, British people have had any influence on this, um, we like to do that, we're very much collective in football teams as well, um, but it's true, he did all of this while still suffering, and it is a true testament to human ability, but that's not to say you should have to go through it, um, you should never have to go through it, ever, alone, um, if you are suffering, um, but the fact that that is the first of its kind, and even the papers I was, I, I have been reading, um, that the one I read at the start was from 2020, the ones that I found kind of where the interest really picks off are from the late 90s. And, you know, we look at some psychology that started in the, well, eight, I believe Freud was 1890s. So sports psychology has a long way to go. But the first thing we can do is start by being open-minded and actually realizing that whilst we interview these athletes, whilst we see them on the media, whilst we may grab them for a picture and they seemed, you know, kind of very kind or, or maybe perhaps we got a bad reaction and then our entire judgment is that, well, actually, they're just really mardy and they don't deserve that medal and whatever. We just remain a bit more... I don't want to say open-minded again, but that is the word I'm going to go for. We remain open-minded. <laughs> it's always a great thing um, to kind of any sort of problem that people may encounter because there may be a number in a sheet for a sports psychologist, but there is a full person who has a full variety of uh, experiences in life. um, And quite often we relate to people that have had a similar level of experiences of us in life. um their emotional intelligence perhaps is a good indicator of how good they may be with overcoming these problems. If they've never experienced it before, they perhaps will be a bit bewildered and kind of unsure and a bit lost. Whereas if they have experienced it before, we may be able to help them or they may be able to do it a bit more themselves, maybe a bit more autonomous with helping themselves. Um, and sometimes you can't recreate experience, but what you can do is create conversation. And by creating conversation, we at least raise awareness to individuals about the things that may possibly happen um, as a result of being an elite sport. So I guess that's the end of this podcast, which seems to have gone on for a really long time. And I kind of feel like I've rambled a little bit, but there's so many dimensions to this and obviously I've only spoken about mental illness in the respect of depression and anxiety, um, and potential obsessive compulsive disorders. Um but there are a whole host of other mental disorders that, you know, athletes because of where they are, may possibly be predisposed to them. Um so we'll we'll call it a first in a series, you know, we'll go with that. Um But thanks for listening, this has been substantially longer than my intro. If you've gotten to this point, if you haven't, I'm just talking to myself in my room. Um, My legs kind of hurt, because I've been sat down for a long time and the rain's come back. I've also just found a parcel that I need to send back, so you know what? We're not going to get into a tangent of my life and why it's a mess. We'll end it there. If you can, maybe imagine that gif of Obama dropping a mic. That seems suitable to end it like that.